Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. This is episode four, an absurdly long episode by our standards, which has taken absurdly long to write by our standards. And I want to recap what we have learned at the beginning of the season, because today we're going to cover some concepts which will rely on those foundational ideas. So, Smokey, please, to summarize a couple of the key things that we have learned already. Well, firstly, man must wear clothes. They glorify him as the image of God, and they cover the parts of him that are not for others to see, while enhancing the beauty of the parts we should see. And in this way, clothing amplifies and reveals the image of God in us, extending our presence. And secondly, clothing is integrative. It is what binds us into a larger body and communicates our place in it. A pattern that I do not fully understand, but the covering of the body is related to the unity of the body. So clothing isn't just to cover our shame or disgrace. It is an important point. It is also to extend our glory. But there are ditches. You can wear too much clothing, completely covering yourself and thus hiding and denying the image of God in you. Or you can wear too little clothing, which we know is shameful and immodest. But why? Until now, we have really only circled around that question and focused on laying a more important symbolic foundation. Because when you say you're doing a podcast season on Christianity and clothing, the inevitable response we have found is, oh, like on modesty. Indeed. If you are talking about clothing as a Christian, you must be talking about modesty. What you can't wear, basically. What you can't wear. And hopefully we've shown that there is much more that can be said about clothing, historically and symbolically and biblically, than just modesty. Nonetheless, it is a topic, obviously, that has to be addressed because it's mentioned in the Bible in relation to clothing and it has been a point of contention throughout church history. And it's a striking example today of how modern Christians have conformed, whether unthinkingly or squeamishly or enthusiastically, to the standards of the world rather than to the standards of the scriptures. But it's actually a more difficult topic than most Christians today give it credit for. Modern debates about modesty are generally pretty cringe on both sides because they are so shallow. I fully support instructing both men and women to be modest, keep your yoga pants at home. But while concrete rules are helpful, and people who call that legalism are scofflaws, we need to actually explain modesty as a symbolic pattern rather than just telling people to cover up, because otherwise the response is always just, got a verse for that? In other words, we can't really answer what is modest clothing without first answering what is modesty, because we don't have many concrete biblical rules for what counts as modest or immodest clothing. The Bible says we should dress modestly, says it all over the place, but it doesn't ever specifically say, you know, how much leg is too much leg to show, or whether it's okay for people to be naked in same-sex environments, or whether children can be naked in public, and if so, to what age, you know, things like that. It didn't need to make rules like that because it expects wisdom of its readers. It expects them to be able to think symbolically. It expects them to understand the physical images, the spiritual, and for them to understand the spiritual pattern that modesty is meant to embody. Which is the exact thing we can't do anymore. Our intuitions in this area are just completely out of whack. Through sheer cultural desensitization and saturation of forces like feminism and rationalism, our aesthetics and our sense of decency have become so off-kilter from the biblical standard that we simply can't trust what seems normal our consciences have become collectively seared. And we know this can happen. We've seen this happen to entire cultures. There are people groups out there who go around virtually, if not entirely, naked. And I hope that we all recognise that that's not cool. 
So it shouldn't be unthinkable that the same thing could happen to our culture, which has been systematically, openly, deliberately destroying the concept of modesty for several generations now. We've become so inured to a modesty that if we Google modest swimsuit, we'll find stores selling, you know, a skin-tight, curve-hugging, cleavage-revealing scrap of lycra and claiming with a straight face, and quite sincerely, that it's modest because, you know, it's in one piece instead of two. Or there's the ever-lamented issue of yoga pants, which are a sort of symbol of clothing. It's a polite fiction that if our lower body is a different colour, it is covered. That's not to say that we don't individually have an innate sense of modest and immodest. We all do. Even tribes who wear virtually no clothing have distinctions between dressed and undressed, even if the difference is just body paint or a necklace. We all tend to understand modesty relative to our own clothing dialect, but that's not the same as understanding modesty in a creational sense because our clothing dialect might be completely out of step with God's design. The one thing we learned when we were researching this episode is that dialects vary wildly and widely. When we were thinking about this episode, we asked people from our church what they thought about uh, men being shirtless around other men. Is this modest or is it not? Now, this was not a theologically diverse group of people. This is a group of reformed, post-millennial, conservative, middle-class Kiwis. But even within this tiny, homogenous group, we had people who said no, and we had people say yes, and we had one guy who said it was fine for men to be completely naked around each other, so that's interesting. <laughs> that was a revelation. <laughs> so these, but these were all pretty strongly felt intuitions, and yet they were contradictory, even between husbands and wives. They, they had different ideas about this. So how can we have common ground on this? And if you look back throughout church history, you'll find, again, vastly different intuitions about modesty. The, the intuitions being different amongst a homogenous group are slightly surprising, but once you start to broaden out, not just across space, but across time, it becomes wildly different, ranging from what we'd find strict to lax to plain crazy. And it's worth starting off by looking at some of these examples, because it helps us to properly set the context for this discussion, and it helps demonstrate its complexity. I think we often tend to oversimplify things by thinking historical clothing is modest and modern clothing is immodest, and that is not entirely the case. Okay, Smokey, hit me. Let's start with the less surprising stuff and work our way up. What kinds of notable concerns about modesty do we find throughout Western history? So pretty consistently up until around the Tudors, European Christians had a very strong intuition that women's heads and hair should be covered in public, not just during worship, but at all times. There's a striking illustration in a medieval anatomy text of a woman who's lying naked with her organs exposed to demonstrate female anatomy. She's, you know, splayed out, it's not decent, but she's wearing this wimple-type head covering to preserve her modesty. And this was such a strong intuition that people objected to the French hood that was the kind of headband tiara type thing that Anne Boleyn wore, and it had a veil down the back. Modern fictionalised interpretations of the Tudor period do not tend to have the veils, but they did in fact have the veils, so the head was nearly all covered, except that there were a few inches of hair in the hairline. And that was considered somewhat scandalous. It was a bit of a, a racy innovation. I think that that's actually an intuition which has been fairly universal, at least since the New Testament era, because it seems that they internalized the idea that women should cover their heads in worship and made that a, a rule for life. And that's something that we'll talk about more next time is, I'm going to talk about head coverings in worship, but when we talk about applying how to be modest, we'll have a look at head coverings and whether they should be worn at all times or just during church. Among other Western cultures, for a very long time, even medical nudity was seen as suspect. Nowadays, if you have to be naked in a medical context in front of, you know, a doctor of the opposite sex, you'd find it 
unfortunate and embarrassing, but you would, we wouldn't consider it a sin issue generally. It would just be, you know, what you got to do. But that wasn't the feeling for a long time. In 1322, there was a female physician, apparently a very good one, put on trial for practicing without a license. And her defense was that it was inappropriate for male doctors to palpate the breasts and abdomens of women. And ironically, one of the charges against her was that she also treated male patients. When childbirth was dealt with by midwives, this wasn't such a big problem. But when men took over, or one might say created, the childbirth industry, it did become an issue. Victorian doctors would examine a woman physically, but only by touch, not by sight. And that's not ideal, medically speaking. A strange distinction, also, in terms of modesty. Touching (laughs) seems more intimate to me. It is odd. And, And the stethoscope was actually invented in 1816 as a way to get around the embarrassment of a doctor putting his ear directly to a woman's chest to hear her heartbeat. Which is, you know, it's not that hard to hear a heartbeat. You don't really need a gizmo for it. They just wanted to eliminate the contact. And this would have been a clothed chest, probably. And in 1848, Dr. Samuel Gregory founded the New England Female Medical College in Boston to train midwives and ultimately to educate women physicians, seeking to return women to the birthing room out of the conviction that, and I quote here, the employment of men in midwifery practice is always grossly indelicate, often immoral, and always constitutes a serious temptation to immorality. So nothing terribly unexpected there. Oh, so prudish, so silly, just what you'd expect from benighted earlier times. On the other hand, there are also some pretty surprising practices and views throughout history, especially church history, that we ourselves would feel very prudish about. For instance, starting right at the beginning, tell us, Smokey, about early Christian baptism. Early Christian baptism was naked. They were naked in the nude. You had to be baptized in your birthday suit. You did. And okay, someone needs to tell me about this. On Wikipedia, in, I can't remember if it's a page about Christianity or modesty or baptism or something, but they claim very uh, blithely that the Eastern Orthodox Church still baptizes adults in the nude. Citation needed. Citation needed, yes. I've been able to find any corroborating evidence on this, and I am very keen to know because what, how, why, surely not. I mean, most of the people they baptize are babies, so it's, you know. They do baptize the babies in the nude, I've seen that. Should I message Jonathan Pedro, see if he can respond and shed yeah. some Yeah, I mean, I assume, because Wikipedia is dodgy about religion, usually, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely unreliable. But I, I still would like to have corroboration if this yeah. is the case or not. Someone For science. Um, they also, early Christians, found it quite normal to visit the bathhouses of Rome, which were mixed sex and were naked. It was lamented by early Christian writers. Um, Hippolytus was one. And eventually it did die out as a practice, but it obviously took a while for that particular taboo to form. It was just kind of what you did. And Christians just did it, just like everyone else. What else? There are a few decades in the Tudor period where respectable Christian men wore cod pieces, which nowadays we would view as grotesque and obscene. Mm. That's just a weird little footnote in fashion history. Historically, royal births were often attended by many spectators, partly as a way of verifying that the baby was the real heir and not some pretender that was smuggled in. And even the religious queens, the very virtuous queens, didn't seem to object to this mixed-sex gallery of spectators. It was just what you did. And Marie Antoinette actually fainted during one of her births because of the heat and the crowd because her bedchamber was just packed with gawkers. That didn't seem to offend people's modesty at the time. You also had traditions like putting the bride to bed, which across Europe for hundreds of years was a thing done somewhat symbolically sometimes, sometimes not. Um, I'm sorry, can you explain in a PG manner what that exactly entails? So if it was done symbolically, it just involved people carrying the bride and bridegroom or escorting them to the marriage bed, putting them in, maybe singing a song or 
throwing rose petals or something and then leaving them alone. I see, but less symbolically, less it was symbolically, a somewhat more invasive. Uh, yeah, it, it could have been a bit of a spectator sport wow. in, in terms of legal witness. In fact, weirdly, 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 Martin Luther's own marriage consummation was witnessed by several people. We're pretty sure. Really seems like you ought to be able to take someone's word on that. Yeah. Two or three witnesses. Well, yeah. You've got two. Yeah, and, and Luther, you'd think, would have had objections if it, you know. Anyway, there was also the issue of trial by Congress. That was a thing which was a legal method in Catholic France for instituting divorce proceedings. If a man failed to provide an heir due to alleged impotence, you could, in fact, prove your case in front of witnesses. Again, it didn't happen very often. I can imagine many happen. men would be impotent in front of witnesses. Yeah, but again, it was it didn't seem to go against the mm. religion, just, you know... Then you had holy fools, which were a concept in the Eastern Orthodox Church, largely, I think. Uh, St. Basil of Russia was a famous one, who went around naked, and they occupied this weird liminal space <laughs> between crazy people and holy people, and w- were tolerated for their eccentricities because they were considered to be sort of blessed by God. Often they would, you know, give things away, sometimes things that weren't actually theirs to give away. Or they'd, you know, reprimand people above their station and kind of almost like a court jester, but also a bit like a hermit and a bit like a madman and and, and naked. And, and nobody was particularly offended by this nudity. Then you had the church during the Italian Renaissance commissioning rather a lot of nude artwork. And some of this artwork was displayed in churches and was certainly displayed publicly. Um, very famously, the Victorians, you know, fig-leafed them all up later on. And that was religious influence. But it was also religious influence that created them in the first place. So interesting little dichotomy there. And as for the Victorians, who were famously sort of allegedly prudish, it's um, very overstated. I think one in three women in London worked as a prostitute during the Victorian era. But they they certainly had a lot of modesty-related hang-ups. But they were also comfortable with, for evening wear, the kind of cleavage that would get you banned from proms at Christian high schools, you know. As long as it was only in the evening, you could be really quite revealing. And this is just the start of the confusion. There's plenty more. For instance, weirdly, we can't even agree as a species on which body parts are sexual. Historically, the emphasis on like forbidden body parts has focused on the lower half of the body. Modern Christian and secular women aren't actually that much more immodest on their top halves than they were in plenty of other periods of Christian history. The difference is that we also show our legs. And it wasn't just women. No, for men, the attractiveness of legs was a big concern during the medieval period. Medieval shoes had these flat, thin soles with no raised heel, which resulted in a way of walking called toe strike rather than heel strike, and that developed the calf muscles. You know this from sword fighting, right? This is still how I walk. I thought this was normal. (laughs) You do have good calf. If I'm wearing boots, I'll have heel strike, but any other kind of shoes, I'll... Yeah, just one of those weird things that 500 years ago people walked differently to the way they do now. And if you look at medieval illustrations of men, they have these bulging calves... And that was both accurate and aspirational. It was, you know, cartoon-like, but it was not completely out of left field. And gradually, as the medieval period progressed, the tunics became shorter and shorter, so that more and more leg, which was clad in hose, but, you know, very form-fitting, revealing, uh, was visible. And this caused some moral distress. Clergy were forbidden to wear these immodest leg-showing styles. And the short breeches of later periods likewise showed off a good leg. And many of the dancers, if you think of English country dancers. They were designed to show them off. There was a lot of emphasis, even in like Jane Austen, on how good a man's leg was, and a sort of a, a neat calf. I feel like nowadays a man's shapely leg isn't much of a focus. 
You obviously don't want to skip leg day, there are jokes about that, but if you see a close-up photograph of a male figure in a deodorant ad or on a billboard advertising a gym, it's not going to be his calves that they show, it's going to be the biceps and the pectorals, the shoulders, the abs. Yeah, the upper half. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why this happened, but it is kind of fascinating. And then there are other bits that we don't even really think about, like in Versailles, members of the court were told to sit down with their forearms facing outwards so people could admire their beautiful veins. We, we don't really care, may I venture to say, about anyone's veins anymore? Not really a thing? To me, it seems like a very vulnerable pose, like you're inviting someone to slice. Nice. Yeah. Maybe that was why they were so civilised that no one would slice them. Perhaps. Mm. Or like Ma Ingalls in the Little House books was always covering her ears with her hair because when she was a girl, showing her ears was considered immodest. And it's interesting that she doesn't seem to fault her daughters for not covering her as she recognises that the fashion has changed, but she still kept doing it as kind of a hang-up from her youth. And then to include a, uh, some Eastern views, you had geisha who left the napes of their necks uncovered by makeup in contrast to these highly made-up, sort of almost pancake-made-up faces, because it was emphasising the, the nakedness of the nape of the neck, which was a very erotic zone. More recently, modesty in modern Hollywood culture has had some very odd quirks, mm. which is interesting because obviously Hollywood is not exactly known for being conservative and yet there's this really strange phenomenon with the navel being a forbidden zone for quite a long time. In Some Like It Hot, which was 1959, Marilyn Monroe wore a dress that revealed skin everywhere but had a small piece of cloth over her navel for decency. And in the show I Dream of Jeannie, which was 1965 to 70, Jeannie's midriff top and her harem pants outfit was carefully cut to conceal her belly button, even though it showed off all the other midriff flesh and cleavage, which was apparently okay. Yeah, I read that and I had to think about it because I watched that show as a kid and I would have sworn you could see her belly button because it was that style of dress, but no. Because that's what the style of dress is meant to show, so you would tend to remember it as showing everything. Yeah, and she certainly didn't come across as a a prudish character. No. But no, it was covered up. And we tend to think that's a bit of a distinction without a difference. But the thing is, we still kind of do that. You could say the same thing for the modern preoccupation with not showing women's nipples. So a celebrity can show like 90-95% of her breast surface on the red carpet wearing some structural garment slash scaffolding that's held in place with tape and good intentions. But if she shows a few millimetres of areola, somehow then it's like a wardrobe malfunction, then it's, oh, how embarrassing, poor girl. And this is almost superstitious thinking, isn't it? It's like a tiny remaining taboo in this world of licence. Now, clearly there is an element of subjectivity here. If the clothing language that you speak says that X is immodest and you know that, then even if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it, it is immodest. Remember, clothing is a language. If the town that you live in collectively decides that biscuits is a terrible swear word, in a way, it doesn't matter that it isn't, because you don't go around saying biscuits. But it doesn't work the other way. You know, you can add to creational modesty with cultural modesty, but you can't remove creational immodesty by saying that something immodest is culturally modest. Right. But even in cases where there is cultural modesty that exceeds the creation design, we should be thinking that through, because... What you really have there is a kind of cultural legalism, and that isn't really better than cultural antinomianism. Future generations should have the freedom in Christ to say biscuits, or to show an ankle in public, if indeed that is modest, or whatever. Right. Although we're more in the other scenario now, aren't we? We're trying to say that creational immodesty is culturally modest. Like we've collectively decided that, oh my god, is a harmless expression. We've decided that yoga pants are a harmless garment. Indeed. So we need to think through what creational modesty is 
in order to know whether our culture is on one side or the other of it, which means that we firstly need to look at what scripture tells us about modesty, which is going to be confusing at first, but bear with me. Adam and Eve started out naked. We've talked about this before. They were nude, nothing between them and the world. And it's important to note that because sometimes in the Bible, nudity means partial nudity, more like what later ages call undress. But this was full nakedity. When they fell, they tried to cover this nudity with girdles made of fig leaves. Girdles. Girdles. There, there isn't really a good modern word to translate the Hebrew. The word that's used in Hebrew is obviously a noun, but usually it's a verb, meaning to gird oneself, to encircle and to fasten, like gird up your loins. Doesn't the art of manliness have like a little instruction? I believe it does have an instruction manual on how to gird up your loins. It requires a lot of cloth. I can do it with one of my skirts, which is this ridiculously fluffy, like more than a circle skirt. If you would like to learn how to gird up your loins, like an ancient Hebrew, you can head over to the art of manliness and do a search there. Fair warning, it looks ridiculous. Mm, Well, you would look ridiculous if you were wearing that outfit anyway, though. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's kind of got a saggy, nappy vibe, but it's just not attractive. Yeah, it's not great. The ESV in Genesis says loincloths, which gets towards the idea. It seems to be a garment around the waist that covers the loins, is what they made out of these fig leaves. Right, and God did not consider that much good. No, God replaced this with tunics made of animal skin. Now, I've read modesty writers taking this to mean that this is the concrete bit in the Bible that tells us what modesty is. And the minimum necessary coverage to prevent nudity is what God covered when he covered Adam and Eve. So tunics, or basically the neck to the knee. The word is relatively uncommon, usually used of priestly garments. The priests had undergarments, and then a tunic, and then a robe. And the word used in Genesis is the same as the word for the priestly tunic. The problem is that we know very little about this word or what its semantic range is. Some translators argue that it refers specifically to a long-sleeved garment, which the priest's tunic certainly seemed to have been, which of course would make the argument quite problematic, since it would mean that even short-sleeved shirts or dresses are immodest by biblical standards. Which we know can't be the case, because Joseph's long coat of many colours was considered to be a long-sleeved coat, which was like a managerial thing to show you didn't have to work hard, implying everybody else was not wearing that, implying that... It was okay that nobody else was wearing that. Yes, Joseph's long-sleeved or many-coloured coat is one of the main arguments translators use. They point to the the word there being used as the same, and they say this is indeed a particular kind of coat that indicates something, and it's to do with the length of the sleeves. Right. It also seems likely that these garments went at least somewhat below the knee, and the idea of girding up your loins requires you to be wearing something that now goes above the knee, and there's certainly no indication in Scripture that that's considered immodest. God, in fact, instructs Job to gird up his loins, and it's something which is done many times. So showing the knee in itself doesn't appear to be immodest. Showing the arms in itself doesn't seem to be immodest. So if the tunics that God created for Adam and Eve were meant to only instruct us in the the minimum requirements for modesty, we have some very difficult things to work out from scripture. It seems like there's a pretty obvious contradiction there. So I think that modesty is not per se what God is concerned with when he clothes Adam and Eve. It's not that modesty isn't in the equation. It's just that it's not the only part of the equation. If modesty had been the only thing he was concerned with, he may have provided smaller tunics. Mini tunics. Mini tunics. And a sort of deeper problem is that even if modesty is all that's in view, you know, what then? Like if exposing your flesh between hither and yon equals nudity. Well, so what? What does that mean? It is that it's never permitted, that it's permitted in certain contexts, etc. So it really just doesn't give us enough information to go on. 
Right. It doesn't actually teach us about the morality of nudity itself. And in general, nudity, even incomplete nudity, is not associated with sin in scripture. It's associated with shame. Now, it certainly can be sinful to do something shameful, and it's certainly shameful to do something sinful, but the two are not one and the same thing. So, for example, David provoking the disdain of Michal when he danced before the Ark of Yahweh. We learn in Second Samuel 6, when they bring the Ark up to Jerusalem, that David danced before Yahweh with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. That's Second Samuel 6.14. The narrative continues, then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michal, It was before Yahweh who chose me above thy father and above all his house to appoint me prince over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore will I play before Yahweh, and I will shame myself yet more than this, and will be base in mine own sight. But of the handmaids of whom thou hast spoken, of them shall I be had in honor. Now clearly Michal is accusing David of immodesty, of shameful uncovering. First Chronicles 15.27, which is a parallel account, tells us that David was wrapped in a linen robe, which is sleeveless. So perhaps the state of undress that so offended her was that parts of his chest or shoulders were visible. Perhaps he wasn't wearing a tunic underneath. But perhaps he was simply not wearing kingly enough attire for her liking, thinking that this made him look like a worthless man, like a commoner. And to her mind, this uncovered him. But David's response indicates that Either way, he did nothing wrong in being made lowly before God. There was something appropriate about this uncovering. He doesn't deny that he was shamed. He says rather that he'll be yet more shamed if need be. It is fitting shaming in view of his place before the majesty of God himself. He did shame himself in some sense, but he did not sin. We see a similar kind of thing happening with Isaiah and Micah, only it's more extreme. God used the shame of their prophesying naked as an object lesson for Israel. So Isaiah had to do it for three years. Isaiah 20 verses 2 to 4. At that time, Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put thy shoe from off thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And Yahweh said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and a wonder concerning Egypt and concerning Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Ethiopia, young and old, naked and barefoot, and with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. This may or may not be complete nudity, but it's certainly enough to constitute a misdemeanor in most Western countries because you are not allowed to show your bottom in public. I haven't personally tried, well done. but I'm told. But if public nudity were absolutely and always sinful, obviously God wouldn't have commanded his prophets to do it. He never commanded his prophets to sin. He did command them to do things that were shameful, like cooking with human excrement or building dioramas of doom. And he also commanded Nazarites to shame themselves with regards to their hair. Men, when they let it grow long during the vow, and women, when they shaved it off at the conclusion of the vow. And again, shame, not sin. And I think this is an important way to view nakedness as shame, not sin. Which doesn't mean that you can't sin by being naked. But the sin comes in refusing to recognise the shame. If you think about vomiting in public, it happens, right? It's nobody's fault. It's a perfectly natural thing, even a good thing for the body to do in certain circumstances. It's not a sin. But it is definitely something that you would and should be embarrassed about. And nobody would accuse you of a sin if you, you know, threw up in a movie theatre 
spat your for dogs. Example, spat your dogs during Cluerfield. Yes, while because you were, you were heavily pregnant. pregnant. <laughs> Shaky cam, man. But if you were to deny the shame, if you were to vomit and then instead of apologising and offering to clean it up, just laugh and carry on brazenly as if nothing shameful had happened. I'm going to do it again. Yeah, or worse, be proud of it and do it deliberately. We'd say you were being at least disordered and antisocial. It would be creepy. And if you persisted on doing this to the upset of well-ordered minds, yeah, I think you would be able to say that was sin. Applying this analogy to clothing, there's another good example in scripture in John 21.7. Peter is working on the boat. He's hot. He's stripped down. And he's working with the other men. So it's obviously not considered immodest in that context to be working in a, a stripped down manner. They're not completely naked, but they're certainly a lot more naked than you'd ideally be in public certainly even today you wouldn't go around in public a man wouldn't go around in public like that and at this time they've been working with jesus for a while so you'd think that if it was a problem he would have told them to stop and then when he sees jesus he puts on his outer garment and goes into the water to meet jesus so it would be much more practical to leave it off and to carry it uh, but he sees it as significant and uh, sort of necessary to cover himself in the presence of his master You also see Jesus at one point stripping himself when he washes the disciples' feet. And that was an act of humility. I mean, slaves wore fewer clothes than citizens, partly to facilitate their movements. And as we talked about in a previous episode, wearing fewer clothes is often associated with low status, with even being dehumanised. And ultimately, of course, Jesus was naked on the cross, which is the ultimate stripping of, of status and dignity. And then you have some really odd examples, like men grasping each other's testicles to swear a vow, which is apparently okay. But if a woman grabs a man's private parts to save her husband in a fight, it is a tremendously serious crime and she loses her hand. What do you make of that? Which part? The grabbing of the... All of it. It's weird. Okay. <laughs> just just so everything. I haven't studied this, but my best guess about the reason for the covenantal agreement being made while putting your hand under his thigh, which, which is, is a euphemism. A euphemism. You're supposed right. to hold his private parts is to show the intimate nature of covenant. Right. And to make it very memorable. You're yep, not okay. going to forget grabbing another man's parts. Uh, the reason that it's such a serious crime for a woman to do that is partly because of the hierarchy thing that we're going to discuss. Okay. And partly because uh, in Israel, it seems that the penalties for various kinds of sexual crimes or crimes involving uh, the genitals are magnified because of the fact that Israel is designed to bring about the promised seed so there's oh, a particular so theological okay. rationale for it okay hmm. but those are just answers off the top of my head don't hold me to them interesting and then of course we've got song of songs where we have nakedness just being celebrated between lovers it's very uncomplicated it's it's a good thing our modern sensibilities wouldn't rebel against that really presumably not although certainly the sensibilities of many church fathers did so we can see that nudity in the Bible is a multifaceted issue, and sometimes it's shameful, and sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's sexual, and sometimes it's practical. But... But, crucially, you may have noticed we have shifted here from talking about modesty to talking about nudity. We kind of equated the two. But they aren't synonyms. When you look at what the Bible says about modesty, a lot of it isn't about clothing at all. We think of modesty today almost exclusively in terms of nudity and sexuality and revealing clothes. And I'd say that that's another example of what I call symbolic intensivism. Intensivism. Symbolic intensivism. <laughs> intensivism. Well done. If you've got to coin a phrase, which I, I hadn't coined that particular yeah. phrase. 
symbolic seem, muchness. Seem like the appropriate one. It's, t- it's a kind of tokenism. We I've, I've written about this. Yeah, on yeah, tokenism is easy to say. True Magic. You can have a look on TrueMagic.nz. You'll see an article about it there. But basically, we take the most obvious example of something and turn that into the whole thing. But historically, the word modesty also encompassed the meaning that we still use when we say something like, I know a man who owns a modest two-bedroom flat in Cambridge, as if such a thing is possible. Hmm. For most of history, in other words, the church was not only concerned that its people be covered, but that they be meek and unshowy. And for these Christians, being lavishly attired was immodest, just as much as being scantily clad was. This went hand in hand with the idea of a stratified society, which was ordained by God as stratified. So the idea that different ranks had different duties and obligations when it came to their clothes. We've touched on some of that in past episodes. So it was acknowledged that a king must wear grand clothes from time to time, and it was no sin. Even though it was a virtue for him to dress humbly at other times, it was a virtue that he dressed befitting his station when occasion called for it. There's a wonderful Victorian history book by P.L. Jacob called Manners, Customs and Dress During the Middle Ages and During the Renaissance, and it's fun to read, not so much because it describes the medieval period with strict historical accuracy, but because it just reveals so much about what the Victorians felt about the Middle Ages. And he talks a lot about these various supposedly humble and pious kings of the past, and there's this constant emphasis of... He was so humble and godly that he wore the plainest, coarsest, most practical clothes. But, again, very, very important, when he had to dress up for a state occasion or on his coronation or whatever, you know, he scrubbed up real nice. The one was as morally important as the other. He should not disgrace his people by being underdressed. And there's there's actually a passage in one of the, <laughs> the Elsie Dinsmore books. You haven't read those, have you? I have not. My mother read them to us when we were good little homeschooling girls and we just could not get through them they're the most they're they're worth reading as an example of what not to do in terms of sacrificing art for morality and literature they are these very moralistic books about a girl called Elsie Dinsmore who is preternaturally virtuous needed a good smack in the face they were the Christian movies of their time kind of that was hilarious anyway she's she's very virtuous she's very rich she's very beautiful and when she grows up and she wears her lovely clothes, some you know, friend of hers remarks jealously that she's surprised that Elsie, being so virtuous, is willing to spend so much money on her wardrobe rather than giving it all to the poor. And Elsie replies that her father has taught her that it is appropriate to spend a certain percentage of your income on clothes, no matter how large her income is. In other words, what you wear is accommodated to your income. And a higher income and a higher place in society naturally equates to better clothes. And it's not immodest to wear them, but it would actually be false modesty not to. And that really reflects the attitude of the time. Right, so modesty was really about a holistic attitude to your place in society. If you take Proverbs 7, for instance, where Solomon describes an immodest woman, he says she is clamorous and willful. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is in the streets, now in the broad places, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face she said unto him, Sacrifices of peace offerings are with me. This day I have paid my vows. This is what in our book, not mine and Smokey's book there'll be a book one day that we write I'm sure sure but Michael Foster and I wrote a book called It's Good to Be Man and in that book we called this woman the loud woman the Hebrew word that the ASV here translates as clamorous literally means noisy but as with English there is more to the pattern of noise than just sound for example you can have a noisy city which doesn't mean the city is just being loud but that it is in chaos so in first kings 141 when joab heard the sound of the trumpet he said wherefore is this noise of the city being in an uproar 
or a noisy sea. Psalm 46, 2-3, Therefore will we not fear, though the earth do change, though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled. Or, of course, you can have a noisy heart, which is the real problem when it comes to modesty. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why art thou cast down on my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? It's the same word that is used. Hence, Psalm 46 also speaks of the nations raging using the same word. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And looking at all of the various uses in Hebrew, I think the best English word to capture the range of meaning is clamor. The sea clamors, the heart clamors, the nations clamor, and dogs clamor too. And the wicked woman of Proverbs is clamorous. I like stormy. Stormy... Not quite the same, but I feel like that captures something. Stormy is a more dynamic translation, but certainly gets the same idea, yeah. Hmm. So the wicked woman of Proverbs is clamorous, and as is usually the case, clamor is a spiritual pattern that is expressed in physical ways. That has to be true, or your heart, your inner being, your soul, could not be clamorous. So the problem with a clamorous woman is not necessarily that she makes loud noises, but that she has a loud heart. She is full of unruly energy. She has a clamorous spirit. So why is it clamoring? What does it clamor for? It clamors for attention. This is easier to see when you contrast it with how scripture speaks of the mature Christian woman. What attributes does it describe as especially beautiful about women? 1 Peter 3, 4 says that it is a gentle and quiet spirit, which is particularly precious in the sight of God. And Paul actually gives quite a detailed description of what this looks like in practice in 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. Which says, I desire therefore that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing, in like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefastness and sobriety, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly raiment, but which becometh women professing godliness through good works. Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection, but I permit not a woman to teach, nor to have dominion over a man, but to be in quietness. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not beguiled, but the woman being beguiled hath fallen into transgression. But she shall be saved through her childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with sobriety. Now in my experience, all the attention in this passage goes to how women can't teach. But if you stop to think about the whole pattern, not teaching is just a natural conclusion of the much larger holistic pattern that women are not to draw attention to themselves in any way in worship specifically. And he explicitly links this to being in subjection. So obviously the context here is worship, but the pattern does apply, at least in lesser ways, to much of life. There are certain things that women can do that upend the proper creation hierarchy. And there are certain things that they can do that reinforce the proper creation hierarchy. And these things especially have to do with how much attention they draw. In other words, they're not to seek to stand over others, whether through their clothing or their speech or their will. Rather, they are to remain meek and modest, quiet and self-restrained, entirely submissive. Right. I talked in the last episode about how our voice represents our agency in the world. And this is helpful for understanding what is going on here. Because when Paul says that women must be quiet, he isn't saying that they literally can't use their voices, although it is instructive to reflect on the difference between men and women's voices. But women are not actually silent, even during church. They sing. And in liturgical churches, which all churches should be, they give congregational responses with the men. And this has been the historic Christian norm. When feminists complain that women don't have a voice in the church, they don't mean literally women can't speak. What Paul is saying is that they shouldn't assert agency over men, for example, by teaching or rebuking men or questioning them publicly. They shouldn't make worship all about them 
whether that's by how they speak or by what they wear. If church becomes this place of female display, like Escot or the Red Carpet, the creational hierarchy is being overturned. And if the creational hierarchy is being overturned, then God's own glory is being overturned, because God is at the top of that hierarchy. For women to be on display in worship is really to steal God's glory, which is what should actually be on display in worship. Incidentally, it's very possible for men to steal God's glory during worship too. And this is a kind of immodesty that the Bible also addresses, in fact, in this very passage. The difference is that where women are perhaps more inclined to steal glory with immodest clothing or inappropriate speech, men are more inclined to steal it by showing off with lengthy prayers full of vain repetition, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, glorying in their own piety, which is just as distasteful as a woman in a too short dress, or by getting into theological arguments to show off how learned they are, which is why directly before talking about women not showing off, Paul says, I desire that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath or disputing. But what I'd like to zero in on right now is verse 9, because it solidifies and expands on the basic idea of what modesty is. We've looked at modesty in the negative, seeing that immodesty is clamorousness or a refusal to integrate into God's hierarchy, but rather a desire to impose your will over it. The loud woman is a woman who refuses to submit herself in this way. She despises the estate for which God made her. In the hierarchy of creation, she does not know her place. That's important to know. But it's also helpful to examine the positive things that Paul says about modesty so that we can understand it better. He uses three words in 1 Timothy 2.9 that are very helpful for giving us a fuller view of what modesty fundamentally is. So verse 9 again says, In like manner, women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefastness and sobriety, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly raiment. So here we have three words, modest apparel, shamefastness and sobriety. Um, different translations will translate these differently. So I'd like to go to the Greek. The first word is cosmios. This is translated modest in the ASV, but I don't think that that is actually a very good rendering. It really means orderly, fitting, proper, seemly. The ESV says respectable. This word is only used one other time in scripture of the character of overseers a few verses later in 1 Timothy 3.2. So orderly, or perhaps better well-ordered, seems the best translation to me because of the root in cosmos, the world order. Now there are certain figures on the fringe of the modern Reformation who are trying to make themselves teachers of gender piety but have lives too disordered to draw sound conclusions from scripture. And one of the things these people will say is that because Paul uses cosmios here, he wants us to understand that modesty is contextual. What is modest really just means what is fitting for the occasion. And it would not be fitting for women to wear bling in church. That would be immodest. But by the same token, it's perfectly fitting for them to wear, say, bikinis at the beach, because that's what people do there, and that's what makes sense. Obviously, this actually reduces Scripture's instruction to pure cultural relativism, so that modesty ends up meaning whatever depraved human sinners think is well-ordered in a given situation. And unregenerate men tend to think it's pretty well-ordered to see women in bikinis, and unregenerate women tend to think that it's pretty well-ordered to be desired by unregenerate men. So, quod erit demonstrandum. Mm. I think in light of our first episode about nakedness, it should be obvious that what is orderly or fitting or seemly is not primarily dictated by culture. It is dictated by God. It is shameful to uncover our nakedness. It is not seemly. A good culture, a Christian culture, will work within the contours of God's design to establish sound forms of dress to ensure that decorum is always maintained, not that unseemliness is given license under the guise of context. 
Right, and the second word is... Edos. A-I-D-O-S, for the record. This is, well, Alpha Epsilon. Whoa. I mean, this is translated <laughs> in the ASV as shamefastness. Most Bibles here actually say modesty. Again, this word is only used twice in the scripture, once here and once in the negative form in Luke 11, in that dark parable that Jesus tells about the two friends, which I'll read to you now. Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will arise and give him as many as he needeth. That's biblical evidence for co-sleeping right there. It sure is. So the word importunity here is anadea. Many Bibles say impudence, but the word is literally shamelessness. Edos means shame. So anadea is the negation of shame, shamelessness, or, or shameless persistence would be um, a, a more dynamic but accurate translation. This gets Audacity. us... Audacity. Audacity, sure. This gets us to the heart of the matter, which is that modesty is an expression of shame. Not that wearing modest clothing communicates that you are ashamed. So let me rephrase. Modesty is a function of shame. The ASV's use of the word shamefast might sound very old-fashioned to us, too, too old-fashioned to even be comprehensible. But that is only because we have become such linguistic degenerates. In fact, it is exactly right and perfectly comprehensible if you think of another word that we still understand which is formed in the same way, steadfast. Just as steadfastness means that you will not be moved, shamefastness means that you will not be shamed. You shrink from the idea of doing something unseemly or disordered which would cause you shame, or cause others to be ashamed of you. And chief among these things, socially speaking, is elevating yourself above your place, or calling unwarranted attention to yourself. Again, to simplify it, this is basically about how much attention you draw. Modesty is not primarily about covering up the right amount of skin, it is about ordering yourself fittingly to maintain the proper hierarchy, and not seeking to push yourself higher than your proper place. Covering up the right amount of skin is just one of the main ways that you can do this because of how clothing is integral to expressing ourselves and our station, as we've seen in previous episodes. That modesty isn't about covering a certain amount of skin is obvious when you ask yourself if lingerie is immodest. Like, of course it is if you're mincing about the mall in it. But it's not immodest in the marriage bed. In that context, it's fitting to call attention, to exalt, to glorify the parts of the body that one's husband is specifically called to delight himself in. But the context is dictated by creation and scripture, not by cultural whims. Cultural whims can give it a proper form, or an improper one, but they cannot reverse what we know in creation and what is reinforced in scripture. It can be a little tricky to get your mind around this. It seems kind of nebulous. There's no verse that outright defines modesty because scripture takes it for granted that we understand it intuitively. But as we've talked about many times, Modern people are really bad at seeing full patterns like this because they're trained to break everything up into their smallest atoms in order to understand them. But one way to help you see what's going on here is actually to consider what modern culture has done with modesty. That modesty is fundamentally about one's place in hierarchy is actually taken for granted in how feminism has tried to redefine it. Think about the words that are used for women who do immodest things, whether it's wearing a skanky outfit or wanting to rule a country. 
What is the one word that automatically springs to mind that is conditioned into us when we are told that we should think good things about women doing immodest things? What's the word, Smokey? The word is empowering. Indeed. We talk about empowering Sometimes women. brave or stunning. But brave and stunning, it. stunning and brave. Yeah. But that is an empowered woman. The most important thing is to empower women. So what is really going on is not that modern people have somehow become oblivious to modesty. We haven't become blind to the shame of women taking certain things upon themselves or exalting themselves in certain ways or seeking glory that isn't theirs. We still feel the force of that because these things are built into us. No one likes shame. We all want to get rid of the feeling of shame. But the feeling of shame is built into us. So instead of dealing with it the way God intended and the way most other societies have dealt with it by letting it drive us to modest behavior, what we've done is we've tried to redefine our intuitions as patriarchal oppression so that the shameful behavior is actually something women ought to have and allowing them these things is therefore liberating and empowering. In other words, there are two ways that anyone can respond to the intuitions God gave them about seeking glory beyond your station. Two ways that you can try to get rid of the shame. First is shamefastness, where you recognize the objective force of the shame and let it push you away from such behavior. Or shamelessness, where you try to convince yourself that shame is just made up as a tool of oppression, and therefore try to actually move towards shameful behavior as an act of liberation and empowerment. What's interesting is that shame can neither be created nor destroyed, only transferred from one person to another. When you have a shamefast society, a society that refuses to allow ignominious behavior, the shame of such behavior is rightly put on those who perform it. But when you have a shameless society like ours, a society which tries to promote shameful behavior as empowering, you don't, you can't eliminate the shame. You just have to move it around. Which is why if I were to say this stuff to a feminist, their first impulse would be to shame me for saying it. You see exactly the same tactic with the Rainbow Brigade. They try to convert shame into pride. It's not a coincidence. They chose that specific term for the promotion of their movement. And so the shame has to now go on those who oppose them. It can never be a case of whether there will be shame associated with unseemly behavior, but rather who that shame will be put on. Right, Paul uses one more word. Shall we go for the third word? Sofronsune. The ASV says sobriety, and that is a pretty good translation. The NET says this word and its cognates are used frequently in the pastoral epistles. It means moderation, sobriety, decency, sensibleness, or sound judgment. It's fundamentally about having good sense because you have a sound mind. Barnes says the word here used means properly sanity, then sober-mindedness, moderation of the desires and passions. It is opposed to all that is frivolous and to all undue excitement of the passions. You see how this is directly tied into what we've just been talking about in terms of upsetting right order through improper self-exaltation or excessive flamboyance, as Logos Notes puts it. Undue excitement of the passions is very much in the same vein as the clamorous uproar of the soul that we encounter in Lady Folly. This helps to emphasize an important point about modesty, which is that it is not fundamentally feminine. Men can be just as immodest as women. They just do it in different ways because men and women are called to different places in God's order. So this word that Paul uses here, sophronsune, he uses here of women, but he uses it of overseers a few verses later in 1 Timothy 3.2, where it is translated as sober-minded. Soberness or sobriety are required of both men and women because both men and women are made in God's image to properly order the world in God's stead. That's what dominion is. 
And they cannot do that if they cannot order themselves or their relationships with others and their place in broader society. One commentator talks about how this is fundamentally the idea of self-restraint, the conquest over all wanton thought and desire. Another commentator worth quoting at more length is Kelvin, who captures the connection between the spiritual pattern of immodesty and the physical expression of it very well, saying that Paul, quote, intended to embrace the opportunity of correcting a vice to which women are almost always prone, and which perhaps at Ephesus, being a city of vast wealth and extensive merchandise, especially abounded. That vice is excessive eagerness and desire to be richly dressed. He wishes, therefore, that their dress should be regulated by modesty and sobriety, for luxury and immoderate expense arise from a desire to make a display either for the sake of pride or of departure from chastity. And hence, we ought to derive the rule of moderation. For since dress is an indifferent matter, as all outward matters are, it is difficult to assign a fixed limit how far we ought to go. Magistrates may indeed make laws by means of which a rage for superfluous expenditure shall be in some measure restrained. But godly teachers, whose business it is to guide the conscience, ought always to keep in view the end of lawful use. This, at least, will be settled beyond all controversy, that everything in dress which is not in accordance with modesty and sobriety must be disapproved. Yet we must always begin with the dispositions, for where debauchery reigns within, there will be no chastity, and where ambition reigns within, there will be no modesty in the outward dress." Unquote. If you'll permit me one last example, I'll quote Matthew Henry as well, because he also understands Paul's commands in this way, connecting modesty directly to one's station or place, saying, quote, It would be well if the professors of serious godliness were wholly free from vanity in dress. They should spend more time and money in relieving the sick and distressed than in decorating themselves and their children. To do this in a manner unsuitable to their rank in life and their profession of godliness is sinful. These are not trifles, but divine commands. The best ornaments for professors of godliness are good works. End quote. And to ornament something, of course, is to add glory to it. We won't repeat what we've said in episode one, but it may be worthwhile to go back and listen to it again in light of these thoughts, because internalizing all these ideas really does take time, and they tend to sink in more deeply and with more clarity once you've started to see how they all fit together. But let us return to the basic practical example of immodesty, so you can see how the fundamental problem is really seeking glory beyond your station. Why is it immodest for women to wear clothes that reveal their bodies? Well, because they're doing two things. First, they're trying to exalt themselves over other women. If you think that immodest dress is a problem only when women know men will be around, you don't understand the female psyche very well. Immodesty is a problem even in convents. It just takes a much more subtle and sophisticated form which really illustrates the point that it's not fundamentally about how much skin is being covered up. But of course, in general society, skin is one of the chief issues because men want to see that. So the second thing that immodest women are doing, apart from trying to exalt themselves over other women, is that they're trying to seek glory from men who aren't theirs. They like the power that it gives them over men because they know that men can be controlled through their appetites. This is why Solomon's mother warns him, give not thy strength to women. And Solomon famously did give his strength unto women. His weakness for women led him into idolatry. At this point, you will 
have those fringe figures in the patriarchy movement saying, well, scripture shows us women dressing in ways that would be considered immodest today. For instance, and I am quoting here from a source I shall not name, nothing in the Bible says a woman's beauty or even the display of her body is for her husband only. In fact, we have examples that show just the opposite. Genesis 29.17 tells us that Jacob was attracted to Rachel based on her beautiful figure and face, literal Hebrew. And so, too, women like Esther had a beautiful figure and face. These women were not wearing clothing that hid their figures. Now, we can quibble on the Hebrew. It's really beautiful of form and appearance, not figure and face. But same difference. The point stands. The question is, how on earth do you get from Jacob being able to tell that Rachel was pretty and had a good figure to therefore skin tight dresses are okay in public, which is how people like this literally apply the passage. Not only does it not follow, but it obviously doesn't follow. There are all kinds of garments that honor a woman's curves and express her physical beauty without flaunting those curves or exposing her beauty. This seems so obvious that it shouldn't need to be stated, but I'm making the point because sadly it does. The mere covering of the skin is not what makes something modest or immodest. If that were the case, you could just paint yourself red and walk around naked, but who thinks that would be okay? Thinking about modesty in simplistic terms, as if it were just about concealing, leads to these kinds of basic errors. But modesty isn't about concealing, it is about proper integration into the hierarchy of creation and society, given your particular place in it and the particular circumstances you find yourself in. The physical forms that this is expressed through require intuition and discernment to balance. There is never a single right answer, but rather a range of right and wrong answers. There are too many enlightenment engineers in the patriarchy movement and not enough re-enchantment artists who understand that wisdom does not consist in rote application of rules. In fact, that's the difference between priests and kings but rather in reflective adaptation of God's law to one's particular circumstances. It's very ironic, in fact, that the patriarchal movement has adopted the word king so hard. <laughs> Kings have wisdom. Priests follow rules. So can you define modesty in a simple way for the sake of clarity? Here is my best attempt. Modesty is an awareness of your place, along with a desire to act and express yourself in ways that tend to preserve that place. So modesty is an awareness of your place and accompanying desire to behave in ways that preserve that place. By contrast, immodesty is a lack of awareness of your place and or an unwillingness to preserve it, but rather a desire to act and express yourself in ways that grasp for more glory than you are due. So why is modesty so often thought of as a sexual thing? Why is nakedness so directly connected to it? Well, it's actually straightforward, but it requires not thinking atomistically and reductionistically. A perfect place to draw out the connection is Exodus 32.25, when Moses saw that the people were broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose for a derision among their enemies. This is at the Golden Calf incident, right. where it says break loose here in the ASV. The KJV translates it as naked, when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, this word actually consistently refers to casting off restraint or making something loose. It is used of having hair go loose, for instance. And so the NKJV says the people were unrestrained. So the KJV is not translating accurately in a formal sense, but the KJV translators connected this with nakedness and translated it dynamically. And I don't think naked is a good translation because that isn't what the word means, but I do think that it's a good intuition about what was happening. 
The people were naked before their enemies. Indeed, they were not just naked metaphorically, but literally, as Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 10.8 Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. So what's the connection the KJV translators saw between the casting loose of the people and nakedness? Well, see how it makes them a derision among their enemies. They are shamed, in other words. It is shameful that their enemies see this because it reveals something to them that they should not know. We have seen that clothing is communicative and integrative. It is what binds us into a larger body and expresses our place in it. Well, both communication and integration are connected to knowledge. When you communicate something, others come to know it. And when you are integrated into a body, you are known by that body. This is actually a very deep and important point. Think of how scripture describes sex in these terms. The man knew his wife. But there are some bodies that you shouldn't be integrated to, like the body of your enemies, and some things about yourself that you shouldn't communicate to others. The phrase too much information is very apt. Revealing or uncovering is literally revelation. It is to come to know something. There is a direct intimate connection between uncovering and knowledge. When scripture says the man knew his wife, it is not speaking in euphemisms, it is speaking in symbols. And this is why it also speaks of unlawful sex, as with one's mother, for instance, as uncovering your father's nakedness. And this is why skin coverage and figure coverage are not the same thing. There is a kind of intimacy in knowing the details of someone's body. That's why we recoil from the old naked guy in the changing room who doesn't care. It's just, it's too much information. We don't have the intimacy of relationship. Yes, we don't have the intimacy of relationship to justify knowing, old man, that you have hemorrhoids and a tattoo on your buttock. And I would hope that Christian husbands and wives wouldn't share explicit details of their spouse's bodies with their friends, because that's not information they're entitled to know. But nudity reveals that without telling. And personally, I feel a bit squeamish about seeing men, especially if I know them, shirtless, because it just seems kind of icky to know, you know, if they have hairy chests or not. I just, I don't feel like I should be privy to that information. And it's even something of a literary trope, actually. Um, Shakespeare uses it in Cymbeline. A character has made a bet he can seduce a woman, Imogen, and reports a distinctive mole under her left breast to prove he has succeeded. Um, he hasn't. He spied on her while she was sleeping. But the point is that this kind of intimate body knowledge used to be considered proof of actual intimacy, and not just proof that someone had looked through your Instagram feed. I think if you understand the connection between nakedness and knowledge, you understand why all these conservatives have such a problem with yoga pants. They cover the skin, but they reveal a lot of other information. It's like shrink wrapping a Christmas present. Even if you use tinted shrink wrap, people will still know exactly what it is. So we've gone for a good long time now. I think that we have shown that modesty is a spiritual pattern first and is not fundamentally about what you do physically, but rather what you do physically expresses the spiritual pattern. And we've also connected the idea of modesty and knowledge. This is where I'd like to end today because I want you to be able to go away and reflect on that without having your brains completely overloaded. And also because, frankly, we still haven't gotten to the end of this episode and we needed to break it into two parts in order to get this part out. Yes, and it's 11 o'clock. And it's 11 o'clock at night. Which for us is late. Well. Ish. Yeah. So if you are a paid subscriber, we thank you very much for your patience. If you are not a paid subscriber, we suggest that you head over to truemagic.nz and become a paid subscriber so that you can enchant the world a little bit harder. And what else, Mookie? Next time we will talk more about how to flesh this out. Yes. As it were. <laughs> As it were, Smokey. How to apply it. What are the problems? 
What should we be doing? What kind of clothes should we be wearing? What does it all mean? For now, that's it for this episode. Go forth and present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service. This has been True Magic.